Welcome to Liftoff from your friends at Relay FM. Liftoff is a fortnightly show where you don't have to be a rocket scientist to understand the latest news about space and related subjects. My name is Jason Snell, and I'm joined, as always, by my co-host, Mr. Stephen Hackett. Hello. Hey, Jason. How are you? I'm pretty good. I flew in from NASA, and boy, are my arms tight. No, I didn't. I drove back from NASA, and my arms are fine. Hi. <laughs> uh, yes, you had you had an exciting week, and we... Uh... You're now the uh, reporter in the field for Liftoff. I guess so. I guess I did plug, I plugged the Liftoff podcast when I was at, at NASA. So hopefully we've picked up, you know, several new listeners. Very Hi. cool. Yeah. <laughs> Greetings. So per our format, we're going to handle some pre-flight checklist stuff. And we got a mini topic before we get to uh, to the big one. Um we wanted to point people again to the Tumblr that we set up. Uh, we set that up last week, right, or last fortnight, I should say, before uh, the episode. And we've been busy uh, posting things and, and original stuff and new stuff and links. And I'm having a lot of fun with it. Yeah, I think it, I think it serves as a good, um, it's like a little notebook for the the podcast. That that I feel like I I bump things there that are are like wait hey, we might want to talk about this and so, some of it we won't get to and some of it we will but I just keep thinking uh, it's worth uh, you know it's a good place to collect interesting space stuff so you should check it out if you if you do Tumblr you should uh, follow it and if not maybe bookmark it or something like that and and just watch what we post there uh, we also wanted to uh, point people to the visions of the future project which is. Uh, a collection of posters put together, uh, hosted over at the NASA JPL website, and uh, it's really some beautiful artwork on here. Yeah, I I first saw these. Somebody was sending a link around that was to the artist's um, website where the artist is selling them, and I thought to myself when I saw them, um, all the uh, the NASA references. It seems a little bit weird. Like, uh, does NASA know that this? person is doing this are they going to get in trouble are they going to get a cease and desist and then it turns out like the next day i think um nasa started like promoting it and pointing to it so i don't know whether i just missed it or whether nobody was linking to the right place but um it is it is uh authorized which is cool it's really really nice stuff you can go in here you can download a pdf most of them also have a super high resolution tiff file so you can like go and have these things printed as an actual poster, uh, at least for the most part. So, and you can order. I, I think the artist site um, you can order prints from the artist and and get them that way too. Yeah, su- super cool. And there's lots of little, um, uh, lots of little little Easter eggs in here about these various uh, bodies in the solar system. So Europa, the little tagline is "Discover life under the ice," which I, I just uh, that may be my favorite. I think. But, That's pretty um, great. Lots of lots of great stuff. You should go check it out. Um, and uh, we'll have a link to that in the show notes. Nice. So today, as we record uh, February 11th, uh, some big news uh, coming out of the, the s- space arena, if you will. Mm. Um, the uh, For the first time, according to researchers, there have been, there's been evidence and documentation of gravitational waves. Um, so, so Jason, what is a, what is a gravitational wave? Oh, so this is a it, it's a it's esoteric on one level and yet incredibly exciting on on some other levels. The um and there's so many different ways to go. I was talking on Twitter with somebody today about who who was complaining about um like burying the lead on these as we say in the journalism biz, right? Which is like how do you how do you how do you explain this to people? So here I'm going to go, but I feel like there are three different ways to do it. One is this uh, Einstein narrative, which is one of the outcomes of relativity uh, something that that Einstein proposed actually in 1915 so 101 years ago uh is this idea that uh gravitational waves exist that that um that energy uh energy can generate waves in space-time that that um space-time the fabric of space and time itself will be distorted and and can ripple uh which is a great concept and everything in you know what einstein has proposed back then basically we rely on today but it was felt that this was originally um not uh testable 
like like how people talk about like the many worlds theory and parallel universes as being something that is an interesting idea or even string theory quite frankly that may never be testable and uh science actually has kind of a disdain in general for things that are not testable but in terms of 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 relativity basically everything about it is has been shown to be right however it it seemed like it was going to be very hard to uh, get evidence of gravitational waves. So they built this thing called uh, called LIGO, the the Laser Interferometer Gravitational Wave Observatory, which is this amazing bit of technology. It's these two L-shaped labs. One's in, in uh, Washington State, and one of them is in Louisiana. And they are, are long, uh, these long, long, long um, uh, two vacuum tubes, basically, with a laser pointed down them. It's like two and a half miles long, right? It's it's like, yeah, it's 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 huge scale like you'd see for like super colliders or something like that. And all that it's trying to do is is measure isolated and, uh, you know, pinpoint accuracy. It's amazing whether the laser gets deformed at both of the at both of the ends as it bounces back. Um and if it, if the laser gets deformed, the sensor registers this incredibly sensitive sensor registers it. The idea here is you're trying to measure if actually like space and time have have rippled a little bit, so that they would not be you know exactly where they were momentarily. They would kind of move, even though everything else is being held as equal. It's a it's a, amazing that this is even possible, and so and they have to build two of them because you need to be able to verify that this is a phenomenon that's happening everywhere and not like an earthquake or something like that. So they have one the one in Louisiana and more of these actually uh, other experiments are are actually spinning up in other parts of the world too. So they measured this thing last year that was measured on both of them and it and, and so that's that's really interesting because that is a clear result of a gravitational wave um that's that's big but the other big part of it is what does that mean and they were they were able essentially this is um we think of it as a science experiment like uh something like the the super colliders uh, and we think of them as teaching us about fundamentals of the universe and they're 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 experiments to teach us about that so you could say okay that's what this is now we know great but it's it's crazier than that because these are telescopes, essentially. They are able to read these gravity waves that are coming across uh, unknown distances from unknown sources and make those sources known. So in this case, they were able to actually analyze the gravity wave. So we, we, we analyze infrared radiation and radio waves and light from all over the universe and learn things about it, right? That's what telescopes do and radio telescopes do. Um, this is a gravity telescope, essentially. And what they what they discovered is this thing that they detected in September is to, they were able, based on what they saw, to say this is two black holes, one that's like 30-some Earth masses and the other one is like mid 20s some earth masses so they're these huge black holes and they combined so they were zooming around each other and then they combined and the the act of combining them when they collide together at half the speed of light uh creates energy and the ener- and and so the the their masses aren't additive they don't actually create you know if you've got if you've got a, a black hole at 25 and a black hole at 30 masses and they come together you don't get a black hole of 55 masses it's less than that and so something like i think three solar masses three times the mass of the sun was expended entirely in energy converted into energy and by you know e equals mc square and things like that we know that even a small amount of mass converted to energy that's how you get a nuclear explosion it, it, it's insane but this is on the scale of like three suns worth of matter. So where did that where did that go? Because these are black holes. Where did that energy go? How does it radiate out into the universe? And the answer is gravity. It radiates out in gravity. When you take three solar masses worth of ener- of matter and convert it to energy, there's a huge conversion and a huge shock wave and, uh, is expelled, and that's this gravity wave. And and they were actually able to determine how long ago that happened. And it's more than a billion years ago. So this is more than a billion light years away that this wave has been coming toward um, where we are. It's not even where the solar system is. It's where the solar system would be 
a billion years later. Um, and that is what we pass through and that's what we experience. So by doing this, this telescope has has actually also confirmed the existence of uh, 20 to 30 solar mass black holes and a binary black hole system and and all of that. And so there are probably things that we're going to learn about the universe by using gravity gravity waves as our method, just like we use light waves and uh, and radio waves and infrared waves. So um, it's not just a confirmation of one of the most important theories in science. It's also sort of step one in an entire new kind of astronomy that actually uses ripples in space-time to uh, communicate information about what's happening in the universe, which is kind of mind-blowing. So it's complicated, but there's sort of a couple different stories that I think. Um, and, and, and they're also selling it as being sound-based because... You can translate these uh, results into kind of a sound wave, mm-hmm. and uh, and so they've they've ha- there's a little audio clip of like a little boop that happens that is the sound of black holes condensing into one, basically, um, which is kind of a fun way to think of it. Is is we're sort of listening for this if you want to put it that way, but um, it's it's crazy because this is fundamental. You know, this is this is. Uh, fundamental understandings of relativity and the existence of space-time as a real thing. It's not just a theoretical thing. We are all enmeshed in space-time and it can be warped. And here is an example of these waves traveling through 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 the fabric of the universe itself, um, not stopping for anything, not stopping for matter of any kind, and just continuing on. It, uh, reading this big New York Times article, I think there's some, some interesting things to point out. Uh, but the article closes out by talking about LIGO itself, where uh, they were having technical issues there really until like, uh, I think, three or four days before this was recorded. And so we we have it recorded, but but really ju- just <laughs> by a couple of days that if the, you know they had not been up and running, they would have missed it, which I think is pretty, uh, pretty nuts. You think about how how long that how long it's been and how far uh it has traveled and then we miss it by 72 hours but um this is sort of a, a funny thing to me but i think too it's it's interesting because it's um like you said it is so unlike other things that we observe and we we think about uh, astronomy in in all of these different senses that are all visual like you said and and uh, to tell this story in a different way, and that it's not something that you can go out and, and see, but it's something that you can uh, detect and can, you know, quote unquote, hear. Uh, it does add a new dimension to this, and I think that it is um, an exciting thing. And I hope that that as time goes on, that more of these can be can be detected. And I think it's going to open a whole new chapter in, in how we understand space time itself. Yeah, it's. Uh... It's a big story, and, and, and it's been anticipated for a long time. People have been talking about it. In fact, for the last few months, there's been a lot of rumblings like, they, they did it, they did it. Um, and in fact, they, they seem to have... They ran this experiment for like 10 years and didn't find anything. And then they basically recalibrated the instruments and, and, and improved them and did an upgrade version of it that's the advanced LIGO. And then they ran that, and then they found this. And apparently there are a few other observations that they have made, too. Um, but this is the big one where, you know, you get, you get two black holes, uh, swirling around each other and combining, um, it puts off a huge ripple of, of, uh, gravitational waves and, uh, and yeah, there's, uh, they, they saw it, which is, uh, it's pretty great. Cause that's, that's how science works. And it took 101 years for this to be proven. But along the way, not only is this just proving an ex- esoteric point from relativity, which is important because, um, y- you need to theories are great but you do need to test them and 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 show that they're uh that they're they're accurate otherwise we have misunderstood something if you if if you can't this seemed untestable we tested it we actually got a, a result but it's this other aspect of it which is this is not just about proving that point that's this esoteric point from 101 years ago this is about furthering our understanding of the universe today um by using these measurements which is that that part just is great. As great as the discovery of the Higgs boson boson was in terms of uh, being a theoretical, you know, a, a confirmation of a theoretical uh, a particle. This this to me seems much more exciting in the sense that it isn't just furthering our understanding of the universe, but it's actually allowing us to make measurements 
of the universe that will continue to further our understanding of it. It's exciting. It's, it's exciting. It's pretty cool. I know it's esoteric and, and weird, and, and, and a yeah. lot of people are really uncomfortable with this stuff. And, and at some point on this show, I would love to I would love to talk a little bit more uh, um, on a, on a kind of a layperson level about this stuff because I think it's really exciting, and I do think that people. I don't know. I try to explain relativity to my wife, who is a very smart, smart person, and she goes up to a certain level, and she's like, "Yeah, I don't want to. I don't want to go beyond that." <laughs> right? It's like, stop, stop now. So uh, I, I realize that it can be kind of difficult to to put these in. I think that's why the narratives. I, I think a lot of the stories you see, including the New York Times, the narrative is about Einstein and like proving one of Einstein's things, which is a good. It's a good narrative because it's a great story that this was a thing that was out there. But it's it's only a small part of the of the bigger picture about why this is important. So we're going to talk a little bit, uh, actually a lot, about your trip to NASA this week. But first, you want to tell us about our first sponsor? Yeah, absolutely. This episode of Liftoff is brought to you by our good friends again at Luminos, the one, the all-in-one mobile astronomy app. Uh, it works on the iPhone. It works on your iPad. It works on your Apple Watch, and it's from. Wobbleworks, um, Wobbleworks, uh, family business, more than 50 years of software experience combined in that company. And they, uh, they've made it for not only existing astronomy fans, but to make new astronomy fans. So if you've got somebody in your life, you're trying to get into astronomy, uh, this app may be a way to do it. It's got detailed planet and moon maps, tens and thousands of asteroids and comets, millions of stars, uh, will do wireless telescope control and a whole lot more. Now, um, it's been in development for more than a decade it's got all the power of a desktop astronomy app, but it's on your mobile device, works on uh, your iPhone, works on the Apple Watch, works kind of all these little devices that you've got. And uh, it's been being updated for free in the App Store for, uh, it's going on, going on six years now. So you buy the app and you get the updates too. It's got a huge star catalog. Um, it's the largest star catalog available anywhere on mobile, on mobile devices. It's got the complete UCAC4 up to 113 million stars, but you don't have to download all the stars. That's a big catalog. You can actually choose your catalog size, sort of like how um, GPS apps used to let you, you know, you didn't need to download the entire continent. You could just choose the states or the countries that you were going to. It's like that. You can choose the level of detail that fits your needs. Um, and then you tap and down comes that star catalog. And you can augment the catalog with free supplemental data, um, including stuff like proper motion. So you can say, how fast is that star moving? Um, you know, will will generations uh, in the future be able to see that star where it is today or will it be somewhere else in the sky? Because that happens. We could, we could talk about that sometime too. The star's moving around out there. Um, uh, Luminos version 9 supports the latest iOS 9 features, including split-screen multitasking and spotlight search. And the uh, Apple Watch app, uh, supports watchOS too, so it's faster and more reliable. So anyway, uh, check it out, Luminos from Wobbleworks. You can find out all the details at wobbleworks.com. So thanks to them for sponsoring Liftoff. So this week marked the unveiling of NASA's 2017 budget proposal. So remember several weeks ago, about a month ago now, we spoke about the 2016 budget that got passed and is being implemented now, but... Uh, in the leading up to 2017, basically NASA and the White House work together on a budget proposal, and then it goes before Congress, and then uh, it kind of rolls out from there. And uh, this year, NASA took that opportunity to sort of have a a big press day, more or less, right? So yeah. that the, the budget's in the news, but they also uh, did a big uh, NASA social event to sort of... Uh, I watched the state of the state of NASA speech and a bunch of other stuff and really kind of building the case for the budget to the public directly, which we've spoken about before. That's a huge thing when you're a, a, a tax dollar funded yeah. organization, right? That you want buy-in from voters. You want buy-in from citizens, people like you and me, so we can tell our Congress people like, Hey, you should, uh, you should fund NASA and, uh, of course, it's a brilliant strategy when they've been employing for a really long time, actually. But this year felt felt bigger for some reason to me. Mm. Maybe it's that I'm paying closer attention. Well, they, they they seem to do a little more coordination. I mean, this is the so the president so the president rolled out his 2017 budget, which is 
you know, not the real budget because the real budget will be passed by Congress, but it's the chance for the the administration to put a stake in the ground and say, well, this is what we 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 think we'd like to do, and then Congress sort of reacts to that and throws it out or ignores it or whatever. Um, and and in the end, a budget, you know, there was just a budget passed in December for uh, for this year. So um, so they they chose this moment. Charles Bolden, who's the NASA administrator, gave a speech at the. I think Goddard Flight Center in Maryland, or maybe it was the one in Virginia. But anyway, it was it was uh, it was in the East Coast, um, and then they but they also had these NASA social events where they had people come to different NASA facilities and take pictures and you know tweet them and put them on Instagram and Facebook and you know whatever. And uh, and I was I I signed up for one of those. Uh, I think a listener actually mentioned it, and you mentioned it to me. And uh, I signed up and I got to go. So to, I got to go to Moffett Field, which is the, the, the Bay Area's outpost of NASA. It's down right. It's literally next door to Google. And in fact, Google now or one of the alphabet companies, it's not Google anymore. It's one of the other alphabet companies is, is now managing the airfield and they're redoing the blimp hangar, which is a historic um, it's a dangerous building, but it's also a historic building. So they've taken the sort of skin off this giant blimp hanger and they're, and they're putting, uh, they're, they're going to put a new skin on it and, uh, they're upgrading the Moffett field, like a uh, gate mm-hmm. that the entry gate is, is a, a construction project right now because they're, uh, they're, they're doing that. It's an interesting example of kind of a public private partnership that, uh, Google, because they're the neighbors of Moffett field is sort of become uh, a partner with them in in maintaining this because it used to be a uh i, w- I want to say naval air station i'm not sure but it used to be a military outpost and it is now it has now been converted and it's basically a nasa outpost and uh, the ames research center has been there for a very long time as a nasa outpost but they they've sort of taken over the site now from the military they've done that in the last 20 years and uh, now they're working with google and a bunch of other local tech companies they've got kind of a, a research park outside the gates the security gates to the to the nasa part um, so it's quite a quite a scene. So I got to go there, and we all sort of watched the live stream of Bolden's speech, um, and he gave a state of NASA speech, and then they also demoed a bunch of stuff for us, and it was a big PR push. And and you know I think like you said, this is important for NASA because NASA is a public agency; they are funded by the government, and you know politicians. It part it's it's politics, right? It's all politics. They they want politicians to support their objectives, and they want the people to understand and support their objectives because that's how they get funding. And if nobody, if the perception, public perception of NASA is uh is bad, it's bad for NASA because it's less likely that politicians are going to want to fund what they want to do. And NASA's got public perception issues. I mean, I don't know if we've talked about it, but there was a survey not too many years ago that said like the average person thought that a quarter of the federal budget went to NASA. And that when you hear people say we spend too much money on space, um, I would wager that most of the people who say that, those who are not just fierce libertarians who think we spend we spend too much money on everything. Um, the people who say we spend too much money on NASA, we spend too much money on space, we spend too much money on research, um, probably don't realize that it's about half of a percent of the federal budget. And right. that's down from at the height of Apollo, I think it might have been like 3% of the federal budget. But for the last you know decades, it's been under a percent. And now it's half roughly of a percent of the federal budget is NASA. So their their message is is basically we we actually give you a lot with less. And and it's ironic that I think the perception of NASA as doing all of these amazing things makes people assume that they must be uh doing it on an enormous budget. And in fact, one of the most high profile things that the government does is uh, less than 1% of its budget. So what are the what are some of the big differences? Uh, there were, there were a couple articles up um between the 2016 and, and 2017 budget, you, you walked through some of this mission stuff in your article, which is great. It'll be in the show notes. But um, are there any big surprises for 2017? Um, well, I think I think the interesting thing about it is uh, actually my editor at, at Yahoo, uh, who who put this article together with me, um, his caption for this one image is "Like it or not, NASA is going to Europa." And we talked about <laughs> yeah. this. We talked about this with uh, Emily Lactawala a while ago. Um, and I I don't want to. I don't want to generalize too much, and and but because this is politics, I'm gonna and and politics is so polarized sometimes. I'm gonna I'm going to I'm gonna make a statement which is not it's a generalization, but um, 
the the priority, especially of the Obama administration, the priority is different from the priority of Congress. And generally, the uh, Democratic uh, when Democrats are in power, they are less sympathetic to NASA, and they are. Um, and, and, and they are focused on different parts of what they want NASA to do. And Republicans have are generally seen as being pro-NASA, which is interesting because Republicans tend to be skeptical of spending money on a lot of things in government, um, but not NASA. A lot of Republicans have been historically very supportive of, of NASA. And this has been true for the last like 20 years, 30 years. Um, and there, there are variations in there. So you get this push and pull where... Uh, the the administration and you know Charles Bolden is a uh, is an appoint uh, an Obama appointee. There's been some movement. I think it's largely from Republicans in Congress, but there's been some movement to suggest creating a NASA administrator who works with an advisory board and serves multiple presidents. Rather, you know, a little more maybe like I don't know the Fed commissioner, the Fed chairman. Um, but uh, uh, right now it's a political appointment basically the the last nasa administrator resigned on the day you know everybody resigns offers their resignation on the day that the new president comes into office and then the president can accept it or not and dan, uh what was it dan golden his 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 uh resignation was accepted <laughs> and then charles bolton was uh was uh, nominated and so so you've got the president and the executive branch and uh and nasa and then you've got congress and they have different priorities. So it's weird that like Congress says we want you to go to Europa and we want you to do we want you to launch something in the early 2020s and then the reaction in this budget is well thanks for giving us all that money last year but we're going to cut it all the way back to a small amount and we're going to shoot for Europa but we're going to shoot for it late in the 2020s and uh we will and they like added like an appendix that basically says what it would cost if if Congress did want to fund that Mm-hmm. But I get the sense with the NASA budget that Congress at this point um, basically tears up the the NASA budget and then makes their own. And in fact, there are a bunch of changes in the in the NASA budget for 2017 where Congress uh, allocated the money a little differently in terms of like what accounts it goes into and how it's defined. And in a lot of those areas, the president's budget basically is like, all right, we'll do it that way now. It's like you you want to talk talk about it that way we might as well because that's how it's funded right now so we might as well kind of go along with that but in other areas they're like yeah you know let's we're going to back off on europa and you know we're going to talk more about asteroid missions and going to mars and uh and the 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 president's budget wants to fund earth uh earth research at a very high level um because there's a lot of sort of global warming stuff in there and as you might expect the republicans although enthusiastic about science in general apparently um uh, because they like NASA in particular are not fans of things that look at the environment and try to do things like prove global warming because most of the Republicans who are on these committees um, are at least publicly opponents of the concept of global warming. So you end up with like the Repu- Republicans want spaceships to be sent out into the into the again gross generalization out into the solar system and the democrats sort of like yeah some of that but more uh you know earth observations and things and i feel really bad for the people who work at nasa because this is politics happening around them and they they just have to deal with it because they work in a a government bureaucracy and this is the place if they want to do the work that they're doing that only nasa does they have to do it here but you can also see the appeal i think of some people working for you know places like spacex that are a little bit more like industry although you know they're getting paid by nasa to do spacex so i don't know it's funny it's when you go to a nasa facility you definitely get the sense of this is a giant government bureaucracy and then on budget day you get the feeling of the politics of it that you know nasa NASA's priorities and, uh, and Congress's priorities are different. And of course, underlying all of this is there will be a new president next year. And who will that person be? And what will their priorities be? And what will what will next year's Congress, what will their priorities be? And how, how does that all interact? And, and there may very well be a new NASA administrator next year, depending on what Bolden wants to do, depending on what the new president wants. Um, even if it's a president of the same party as Obama, there may not be the same administrator. Who knows? So... Um, it's not, you know, this is the thing, you know, we we think about, we talk about the excitement of science and exploration and all of that, but this is where it comes back to uh, the money and the money comes from the politicians and ultimately from the taxpayers. And there's a whole bureaucracy built around the whole thing. I think it is strange to to think about that. And, and in comparison to somebody like SpaceX, who obviously has and is dependent on a large 
government contract, but then they also do stuff outside of that. It, it just yeah. Uh, I, I definitely agree with you there. Of you know, if you're working on a a research project or a mission or something, and then it gets scrapped because of a, a budget issue that you know is doesn't really care about maybe the science of it or the benefit from it, but you know some political decision got made and that's how it is. Like I could see that being really disheartening if you're working on something like that. So I definitely um, uh, agree with you there that it, it, it's got to be strange sometimes to kind of live in that world and have decisions made that you can't do anything about. Well, I think the, I think they're all on uh, tenterhooks um, for this and also for whatever budget gets passed by Congress ultimately, because yeah, if you're working on a project and it doesn't get funded, or it gets funded at a low level, or it has its funding cut. The difficult thing, I think, for people who work at NASA is the Congress came through with a budget that that is, was a lot larger than what the president asked for, and it was a budget increase for NASA. And then a few months later, here comes the president with your 2017 budget proposal, and he's proposing less money than Congress gave you last year. So your president who appointed your administrator, you're all part of that wing of the government, is saying, yeah, I'm going to cut your budget. And then you've got Congress, who's sort of your, you know, they are also the government, so they are also oversight, but they're sort of not your branch. And they actually want to fund you differently, but more. So it's a really strange situation. but And I think, you know, I suppose I've never worked in government. I suppose that this is what it's like to work in a government is you've got bureaucracy and you've got different political takes. And, and um, you know, everybody, NASA is something that a lot of people have invested a lot of uh, emotional energy into. And I think that, that um, their pictures of what NASA should be are are different. And it's very clear, like the guy who keeps, uh, who's on the, basically the subcommittee that funds NASA, uh, who's from Houston. Uh, he's the guy who keeps saying, we're going to go to Europa. And he's basically saying, um, I can use my authority to force NASA to do this. And on one level, it sounds really terrible. The idea that a politician could basically order scientific research in a particular area because he's got the power and he's got the votes, but it's not as if scientists aren't saying, uh, that isn't a good idea to go to Europa. Um, you know, the Planetary Society, and again, we talked to Emily Lactawala a while ago about it, and she's their uh, she's their blogger, their editor. Um, you know, they they are unhappy with the Obama budget because it cuts planetary science, it cl- cuts pl- planetary research from the from the congressional budget, and the, the the congressional budget has been much better at that. So, I don't know. It's weird, man. It's weird. It's the whole thing. You know, going to a government facility, all of the facilities are kind of old. I You get so used to going to these high-tech... I think this is where the Google thing comes in. The Google partnership with them is... Um, somebody was saying to me, as I left, somebody who worked there, that, you know, so many of the NASA facilities were built in the 60s because they were really built as part of the expansion of for Apollo. Mm-hmm. And that means they're all 50 years old. They're all these kind of old and falling apart buildings. And how do you fund, you know... All the all the tech companies have shiny new facilities, and they've got cafeterias where they feed their employees and all of that. And then you go to NASA, and it's like cinder blocks and kind of ratty furniture, and you know everybody's told to bring cash to put in so that they can buy us sandwiches if we want to eat. <laughs> um, and it's just it's that's fine, but it's a different world, and so I can see why they would they would uh, Moffett Field uh, and and Ames Research Center look at something like a deal with Google as brilliant because they got the they got the Google money, and in exchange for giving them access to some of their facilities, you know they're getting upgrades that they that they wouldn't otherwise get because they can't pay for them. So uh, let's talk a little bit about your. Um but what you got to do in particular. But um, but first, let me tell you about our second sponsor, Jason. Yes, please. This episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Space! The- <laughs> See? It's in the name. It is. Squarespace is where you can start building uh, a professional-looking, well-running website today. You can enter offer code LIFTOFF at checkout to get 10% off. When it comes to giving yourself a place online, there's no better place to start than Squarespace. They give you the power that you need right into your own hands and take away the pain points. You don't have to worry about hosting, scaling, or what to do if you get stuck with something because they have 24-7 support with live chat and email. There are Squarespace teams in New York, Dublin, and Portland. Uh, who They're all there ready to help you. 
And uh, with Squarespace, you can build these professionally designed sites. You don't have to be a professional. You don't have to have vast coding knowledge. They have intuitive and easy-to-use tools, and you can make your website look and feel exactly how you want. And it's all backed by state-of-the-art tech. You don't have to worry about security or stability. Squarespace takes care of that. And because of that, Squarespace is trusted by millions of people and some of the most respected brands in the world. And these sites are just simply stunning. They're all uh, feature responsive design. So if you're on an iPhone or a laptop or a big 27-inch iMac like Jason is, the site is going to look good uh, no matter where you are, screen size, if it's a high-quality display or not. It's all going to look great because Squarespace just takes care of that for you. Now, Squarespace has a bunch of stuff. They have a commerce platform. You can go and add a store to your Squarespace site. We use that here at Relay for our merch store. So if you have ever bought a sticker or a t-shirt from us, uh, it's all done through that commerce platform. It's super easy. It's it's all secure, and, and uh, it was just a breeze to go and set up. You can also do a cover page. If you need a great-looking single-page website for some sort of announcement or a landing page, their cover page templates are dead simple, super easy, and get up and running in no time. And, of course, it's all backed by this rock-solid, fast-hosting, great support. And if you want to stretch Squarespace even further, if you do like to get in and tinker with the code, you can check out their dev platform. It lets you get in under the hood and uh, really fine-tune your Squarespace site. Now, if you go and sign up for a year, you'll also get a free domain name. You can choose exactly what you want your site to be called. Squarespace plans start just $8 a month, and you can start a trial with no credit card whatsoever. You can start building your website today. Go to squarespace.com, and if you decide to sign up, make sure to use the offer code LIFTOFF to get that 10% off your first purchase and to show your support for your favorite Space Theme podcast. Uh, we'd like to thank Squarespace for their support of this show and all of Relay FM. Squarespace, you should. So tell us a little bit about your uh, your exciting day. Yeah, I should. So um, the see what I did there. I uh, went to went to NASA. So I it took me two hours to get there because traffic in Silicon Valley is terrible. Um, that was not fun. But I got there, and uh, we got a we we um, so Moffett Field is in Mountain View. It is right next to uh, Google, Google. Like I said, you can see it from the freeway from uh, US one hundred one. And so it's in the heart of Silicon Valley, right on the bay. And uh, we got a uh, we got a little intro from the director at the Ames Research Center, which is the NASA at Moffett Field. Uh, and that's Eugene, too. He uh, talked about a lot of the stuff that they work on there. Um, you know, heat shields. They've got a big wind tunnel, so they do a lot of aerodynamics stuff. Uh, the, the Kepler mission is run out of there. So the searching for exoplanets. Um, and I, uh, I'm actually really hoping that we can get somebody on from that group at some point. I'm going to, now that I have talked to the PR person at, uh, at Ames, I'm hoping that maybe we can get somebody to talk about exoplanets with us. That would be kind of cool. They, they do some, uh, low cost spacecraft building there, including some CubeSats, which are those little, um, uh, SpaceX actually deployed some of those in their last launch. The, these, they're little tiny satellites, like super tiny satellites called CubeSats. Um, and they work on some of that stuff there. They have a uh, they have a supercomputer that I got to see, which was kind of fun. Uh, it reminded me a whole lot of I went to the Major League Baseball Advanced Media uh, Data Center at one point in New York City, mm-hmm. and uh, and it reminded me of that in that it is a uh, it's a big uh, you know it's a big space with air conditioning. Lots of air conditioning, yeah, and then racks and racks and racks and racks, like huge rows of racks of servers. Uh, the difference between there and Major League Baseball is the Major League Baseball one has is has a lot of storage uh, because a lot of their their need is storage. Although they also are you know serving data to the web, so they've got the, the, it's processing power, but it's also sort of network and storage. And here there is storage. There's a lot of storage, but it's also just processing power. So they have these. They have these blade servers that have like I forget what it is. It's like a sixteen to twenty four core processors, and there are two in every blade server. And there's just stacks and stacks of these servers, and they they they're all optically connected together. And I I tweeted a picture, and people are like, "Oh, it's so messy. They should why do they have the cables on the front? They should put them on the back." <laughs> I saw I saw some of those replies, and and the answer is because the cables on the front save several nanoseconds. 
And although that seems ridiculous in a supercomputer over time, it matters. So they have, they have opted for practicality over looks because the faster your supercomputer, the better. And depending on how you measure supercomputers, it's like the 12th or the fifth fastest supercomputer in the world. Uh, they call it Pleiades. Uh, so I got to see that and that was fun. It's on the second floor. This is a Bay Area fact. Sort of like, uh, this is one of the themes here. It's inefficient data centers. So first off, Major League Baseball's data center is in, uh, it's, it's uh, in lower Manhattan. Um, it would seem to me that there's got to be a better, cheaper place to put servers than in Manhattan. Yeah. But that's... Square footage is expensive. <laughs> where at least some of them are. I assume they're still there, but maybe they moved them out. But yeah, it's, I mean, it's not in the, it's not in the, the big parts. It's in, you know, it's Chelsea market basically. Uh, but so it's right next to their offices. And I think that's why they, they have them there. But uh, it seems inefficient. At, at Moffat Field, the, this supercomputer is on the second floor of the building. And they said that actually one of the limiting factors is weight. They can't put more Hmm. computers and storage on that floor interesting be- because the structure won't support it, it cave in yeah which is not what you want in your data center so now why 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 do you think you wouldn't put it on the first floor earthquakes may come to visit yeah so they're right on the, they're right in the marshes and i believe it's fill uh, that 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 Moffat field was created out of uh, of, mm. of landfill on the marshes and there's a thing called liquefaction which yes. basically means if you shake uh, in an earthquake, you shake the ground. Certain kinds of ground that are wet and full of fill shake like jello. They like magnify the shaking and it's much worse. And you can also have subsidence where uh, things drop a lot and basically like literally just sink. And they, the Moffat, Moffat buildings um, are, according to the guy I talked to, rated basically the first floor cannot be considered safe for. Um, not not like for people, but for like their uh, their infrastructure, because the building could drop, to, to could sink down, uh, and the second floor is high enough up that it would be okay, but the bottom floor might drop down into the mud and be a bad place for all of your servers to be. So for these reasons, it's hilarious. They end up with uh, with the weight limits, and they have to keep everything on the second floor. Uh, yeah, that's uh, it's pretty funny. But uh, bad places to put servers, but there it is. But you need it, you know, if you want to, if you want to do, they do, um, they do aerodynamic simulations. They have this crazy simulation they showed us that's, um, that's, uh, it's, it's environmental models of like the winds and the, and the, and uh, also the, the, the current patterns in the ocean for like the earth, not just like a part, the whole thing. Cause you kind of wow. need to do the whole thing. Right. And so they showed us like a time-lapse of, of, uh, of the, the year across the whole planet and what all the ocean currents were. And, and, uh, that's using Landsat data from the Landsat satellites. And she actually mentioned at one point, the, the woman who was showing us that, that, um, famously Al Gore at some point complained about how they had collected, NASA had collected all this Landsat data and it was so much data that they couldn't process it. And apparently over the last decade or so, this supercomputer has enabled them to process it. And so now they have these massive amounts. In fact, I think they're still kind of going back in time and consuming this massive amount of data and being able to do um, to do computer models and build sort of understanding of the of the processes that drive uh, the the weather and other other processes on the earth. Uh, growth of forests is another one they're analyzing. So a lot of interesting stuff there uh, coming out of the supercomputer center. And then they've got like you know the giant hard drives with a with a with a robot tape drive thing to back it all up and um, and and it's pretty it's pretty crazy. So a little computer nerdness inside inside of NASA for the the supercomputer center. That's that's wild. I, you know, listening to you kind of rattle off everything they do. You know, NASA is so multifaceted in their mission, right? It's not, we're going to go out and, and explore, but it's, we're going to go out and explore and we're going to study where we are now. And we're going to look at all these different things in tandem to have a better understanding, uh, not only of, of the universe, but our own home as well. Yeah. I mean, space covers a lot. It covers, it covers crewed space missions. It covers uncrewed space missions. Um, it, it covers, space telescopes. It covers telescopes pointed at the earth, telescopes pointed at the sun. 
so that's the space part. Um, and then there's also the aeronautical part, which actually still is a big part of what they do, certainly at Ames Research Center, which is the other part of this is working with the FAA on things about aeronautics, about airplanes and stuff. And they, they have a whole thing um, about that that um, I was going to mention later, but I might as well do it now. That I mean, not only did they fund in the 2017 budget, there's all, all this funding for things like um, uh, a, a supersonic plane concept that reduces the size of um of a sonic boom because they're one of the things that is a challenge is when we talk about uh, what if we uh, went back to supersonic flight for commercial airliners even if we could make it efficient uh, nobody is going to want sonic booms uh and so they they have a, a a budgeted thing to create an experimental aircraft that would be basically a quiet sonic boom and and to see if they can get that to work and they've got another one that's a uh, a, a power efficient one and, and a high, it's like a hybrid airplane that is hybrid uh fossil fuel and electric um so they're doing they're doing research like that and we we saw a video about um this thing that they're working on at at, at moffett field that is uh, utm which is the unmanned aircraft system for traffic management and basically it's um air traffic control for drones um so this is something that you know you don't think about that as being a nasa thing but that nasa is working on that i think with the faa and what they're working on there is this idea like under 500 feet and under is sort of the drone space it's for it's this it's this kind of uh, it's regulated but it's kind of unregulated place where drones can fly and they are building this cloud-based system that basically you file a flight plan by saying, you know, I want my drone to go from here to here. And you press, you know, and you could, this could be automated too. And on, on the other end, it's totally automated. You press the button and uh, it, the cloud service basically says approved. And, and you've got a, you've got a time window and you've got a, you've got a location window of like where you can fly, what sort of 50 feet on either side, what, you know, here's your pattern to go. And you put that in the drone and the drone goes and flies its mission and comes back. And it does that for all of them, and it's comparing them all. And it it, it basically is a way to let drones fly around and not hit other stuff. Is It's this automated air traffic control system where it's all sort of flight plan based, which is pretty cool. It also has, uh, they're working on it where it's um, it's got geofencing built in so that... Um, you can take not just airports and stuff where there there are geofences so that they don't get in the way of uh, air, airports that are uh, airplanes that are descending or ascending um, but they also have geofences for things like agriculture so that if you want to set a geofence so that you can do crop dusting or some other kind of thing for for a crop in a field you can set a geofence that says, you know, I my my stuff is going to be flying here for these times and everybody else won't fly through there because you've got it. It's yours for that period of time that you're using it. So, you know, that's the whole aeronautics side of of NASA that people don't even think about a lot where they're doing um, experimental aircraft and working with the FAA, FAA on drone flight control. And also, I, th- I think they're also working with the FAA on next generation computerized air traffic control for commercial airliners too. So there's a lot that they're doing. It's pretty, pretty nuts for half of a percent of the federal budget. The Some of that made it into the state of NASA speech a little bit too. And, and, and watching that, I couldn't help but think that that, is part of the, hey, you know, we're doing things that affect and benefit you back here on Earth as right. well. If if air traffic can become faster and more efficient from a fuel perspective and quieter, which was a word he used a bunch yeah. uh, in that speech. Yeah, the that, FAA, that, FAA doesn't do that, right? right. The, and, and, and Boeing, you know, and this is a, a research thing where it's like, well, Boeing and Airbus might use that technology, but are they going to fund experimental plane programs so much or 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 it's got to start somewhere that ba- the foundational research has to start somewhere and the answer is nasa is the one that's that that's the organization that's doing some of that basic research into this uh, you know potential flight technologies of the future exactly it's so- uh that, and that's what you mentioned it. This is one of those two messages that I got hammered with while I was there. There is, uh, we're value for money. We don't make, we don't get as much money as you think. And we do a crazy amount of things and we are directly applicable to people's lives and we make people's lives better. Whether it's coming up with new stuff that makes your air, air you know, your airplane quieter and more fuel efficient or, 
uh, you know, whether it's uh, a bunch of different uh, technologies that spin out of NASA and through commercial partners and end up being real products in the market or venture capital investing in space, commercial space, that there are lots of ways where NASA has an impact. And those are their two messages over and over again is value for money and we make people's lives better. And it's not we're not just, you know, sitting on a hill looking up at a cloud imagining aliens we're actually doing things <laughs> right is uh, going back to the budget perspective they've got to do it with that one-two punch to to have people understand why it is important and and in a way that is not um super like in a way that feels tangible to people who don't follow the science side yeah. of it yeah because that, that's a common thing is like why are we fu- why are we funding uh, the the argument that you always hear and it infuriates me but you hear it a lot is why do why don't we spend all of that money that we spend on that mars rover feeding the homeless in back here on earth or taking care of the poor people here on earth and i think that's a valid argument if you include all the other things the government also spends money on that you could argue should be spent on other things right you can you can make that argument but what singling out space always drove me batty because why are you singling that out and the, the implication is that space exploration is irrelevant to life and that we can go we can go on fine without it and you know I don't I, I doubt most people who listen to this podcast would agree with that. I think that there are so many ways that that's wrong. Not only is scientific exploration important, I think, in general, to increase our knowledge and that the moment you stop caring about learning new things is the moment you kind of died inside. And that I think that works for people and I think that works for cultures and civilizations. So I think there's that fundamental thing about it. But, you know, it's undeniable that NASA's mission does generate uh, technology that uh, is useful um, that would not be generated if it was just sort of left to private enterprise. Now, is there a place for private enterprise? Absolutely. I think it, I, I've talked to people who have said that the first people to land on Mars may very well be people who are working for a private enterprise because mm-hmm. it, it, something like SpaceX may be able to send people to Mars faster than NASA because of the way NASA works, like we've talked about this whole podcast, and the way that private enterprise works. So that, that I think that's, there's absolutely a place for that. But I do think there's a place for us to... Uh, spend money on things that do not have a direct commercial application. And the government, you know, the government spends a lot of money on a lot of different things to, you could argue about every dollar that the government spends that it should spend it somewhere else. And I think that's uh, not a very strong argument to say every dollar that the government spends on space, we would be better off spending back here on earth because first off we are spending it on earth because of the people who work on those and the people who build that stuff. And it actually is earth industries that are created by that. Plus, you know, it, it, it is more research and understanding about the, the, the universe and that has value, not just pie in the sky value, but actual you know, actual tangible things we learn that we can apply to other things. Right. NASA has created jobs in virtually every state in the country. Well, that is not an accident, right? I mean, there are people working on NASA projects in every state because uh, politics, again, right? Yeah. They, they, it's very clever. They have cleverly infiltrated all of our states. Yep. It's smart. And that's, and that's good politics. Honestly, that that's, you know, you, you cut a NASA program, you're going to get a, a member of the house of representatives and a couple of senators who are going to say, Hey, that's our program. And, uh, that's one way to establish your, uh, keep your existence established if you're in the government. Yeah. Uh, so anything else jump out at you? It sounds like it was a, a, a exciting day for you. Yeah, it was, it was, it was a little bit long, but it was good. Um, I didn't get to see the quantum computer, but they have a quantum computer there, which is fascinating. If they can get quantum computers to work, you talk about weird science stuff. If they, you can get a quantum computer to work, you can dramatically change how we uh, how computers work. Um, and I I joked on Twitter while I was there that you know they have a quantum computer here as well as at this location in many parallel universes because <laughs> quantum computers are strange and they use very weird quantum effects to do what they do. But if you can get them, if you could get them to work, it would be dramatic. Like one of the most dramatic things about it would be a lot of our cryptography stuff that is essentially unbreakable because it would take you, um, you know, thousands of years to break the codes with a quantum computer. A lot of that stuff would just be broken. <laughs> 
<laughs> because it's it would be that powerful to be able to analyze that. But it's really early days for that stuff. But I, I think that's a, a great example. NASA seems very proud of that um, location being in Silicon Valley. That is that is like the place where NASA interfaces with the tech industry. And that's good because I think there's a lot of uh, for those organizations to share. Um, and the last thing I wanted to mention was robots. Um, we went into the Spheres Lab, and there are these things called Spheres, and it's an acronym. It's a backronym, obviously, that they they created to do Spheres. Um, and it's uh, these little kind of volleyball-like robots that live on the International Space Station. And they have modules and stuff, and they kind of float around, and they actually blow out uh, CO2 to move around. Um, but they're also building a new one that's called uh, something B. I don't even know what it's called, but it's a it's another it's another robot for the ISS, and it's going to have blowers, so it's going to be able to move around without um, needing new propellant uh, to move around. It, it will just kind of like fan itself from place to place. But it's a cool idea that. Um, uh, people who are working like Jeff, in fact, back who we talked to a couple episodes ago, back on Earth, who need to check on a payload um, or work with a work with an astronaut, can do that work possibly without the astronaut's involvement, which is kind of a cool idea. And they also, you know, are using all, they have all sorts of experiments that they use with the spheres and that they'll use with this new robot. And I asked him about um, the guy at the Spheres Lab about. Um, for outside spacecraft. And he said, it's something that the, they've talked about. The The new one that they're doing is not built for in, outside because it's using a blower, but, right. uh, but that you could, you know, that's some of the potential for having these objects in space is that you could have them outside. And so instead of doing a spacewalk, you could potentially have a robot that whether they blow themselves around with CO2 or whether they're attached to a rail or a tether or something like that. And, and there are questions of orientation. Do you put little transponders all over the outside of the space station so that they can they can because there's no you know GPS up there uh, they, they need to find their way and know where they're going but potentially you could have lots of things that you could do to service the space station without needing a person in a suit you could do it with a robot so um, that's you know there's there there are real robots that are out there now and they're working on new robots and then they're thinking about you know other robots for the future so that was pretty awesome so that's the other thing I saw yeah, I, I spent some time on the Sphere webpage this morning looking through uh, what they're doing and, and what they have planned, and it really is pretty uh, pretty cool stuff. Yeah, it's a, it's, a, it's a totally bogus acronym, though. It's like <laughs> oh, synch- yeah. synchronized position, hold, engage, reorient, experience. Come on. Yeah, that's someone struggled at a whiteboard. <laughs> Can yeah. make that work. <laughs> that's a pretty pretty serious acronym. But they are they are working on um, a bunch of new. Um, a bunch of new robots too. So that that's and, and they have all these crazy experiments like uh, slosh, which is this uh, fluid dynamics thing where there's this like green liquid in a in a in a tube, and the two sphere robots are like attached to the both sides, and they sort of spin it and measure the fluid dynamics. And apparently that was so successful that the astronauts would just take the slosh thing and play with it because <laughs> it's kind of cool to watch the the liquid slosh around in outer space and zero gravity. Yeah, it's. I mean, I'd play with them, right? Like this. Yeah, there's no way you want to. You play with them on Earth, you know, watch the the stuff like sloshing around, and then you go into zero gravity, and it's totally. Anyway, it was a lot of fun. I've been there once before with my daughter's um, uh, elementary school class, and we went to the wind tunnel, which is where their sort of science thing is. Anyway, if you're in the Bay Area, I would recommend um, checking that out because they do they do have. If you've got a kid in elementary school, they do um, a lot of stuff with elementary schools coming and doing the like Moffat, uh, or I guess it's the Ames Discovery Center or something like that that they call it. Um, and it's pretty cool. And they also have a visitor center with a with a with a gift shop. If you want to go some get some NASA stuff, that is a place you could get it. If you're it in is the, not the a Bay NASA area. facility if it's not a gift shop. Yeah. Oh yeah. You gotta you gotta do that. <laughs> well, I think that about does it for yeah. for this fortnight. Yeah, that's what how I spent my fortnight is I went to NASA and it was uh, pretty cool. And I'm not sure I would ever want to work for a giant government bureaucracy because of reasons that we've detailed, but uh, really interesting to, to see how it works with the, the, you know, real people with real security badges. <laughs> I agree. If you, if you want to find uh, links to the stuff we've spoken about today, you can do that in your podcast app of choice, or you can go to our website. The URL this week is relay.fm slash liftoff slash 14. Uh, there in the sidebar, there's a bunch of fun links. You can send us an email. You can uh, check out the Tumblr. You can 
Hit us up on Twitter. The show is at Liftoff Podcast. Jason is at Jay Snell. And of course, writes sixcolors.com. You can find me on Twitter at ISMH or at 512pixels.net. And uh, again, just uh, you know, hit us up. Let's let us know what you think. Uh, we are, uh, I think, on the hunt for another guest or two, yeah. uh, in addition to some uh, some more explainer episodes. So, if you have suggestions, uh, please get in touch. And until the next fortnight, Jason, say goodbye. Goodbye, everybody. Adios.